Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, ladies. Hey, gents. Aaron here, and thank you for tuning in to episode 179. I have a special guest on this episode, and that is Mike Komaransky. For many, I'm sure this will be the first time hearing about Komaransky, but those who know him already know him as a Bitcoin OG and deservedly so as he began accumulating the cryptocurrency around 2010. Though Mike has been a professional trader of fixed income derivatives since 2001, when he joined powerhouse trading firm DRW. Mike later became a partner at DRW, and in 2014, he launched its crypto trading business, Cumberland. Over the next few years, Mike and his team, including Bobby Cho, who's appeared on previous episodes, they grew Cumberland to become one of the world's largest cryptocurrency market makers. Then in 2017, Mike left the company to spend some time overseas. But he has returned and he's again active in the market. His new firm is Grapefruit Trading. Over the course of our conversation, we chat about Mike's distinguished trading career, the strange ways that Mike has bought Bitcoin in the past when it was far less accessible, Cumberland's participation in the auction of seized Bitcoin from the Silk Road bust, Mike's disdain for technical analysis, which I'm sure some of you will get a kick out of this bit, <laughs> and in between all of this, lots more. The last thing I would like to point out is that Mike is an investor or a partner in CoinFlex who have been a sponsor recently. However, this interview is entirely separate from my sponsorship agreement with CoinFlex and actually, I first made an attempt to get Mike on the podcast almost two years ago. And now, here he is, Mike Komaransky, folks, episode 179. Well, I wanted to say it was cool that you had a chance to check out uh, the, the interview I did with uh, Sam from Alameda. I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, Sam's a, a very bright person. He came from Jane Street, so that tells you something. Um, their FTX and Alameda, they've, they've gone from zero to like a very significant 
player in in cryptocurrency trading in the course of two years. That's that's really impressive. And the only way you can do that is just by working hard. He, that's what he, that's what he said when you asked him, uh, you know, what's your secret? And it was really just hard work. So congrats to them. Uh, I think they'll be around for a while. Plus. It was a great podcast, and you know, I, we're we're in similar we're in a similar trading category. So, like many of the questions that you you've asked him, I would I would respond similarly. Like, how do you how do you differentiate between market taking and market making? Uh, what do you do when you have a big position? How do you get out of your trades? How do you approach the market? Uh, he's answered a lot of that, so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, were there some parts? You know, they've been going close to two years. You've been around in this space for a lot longer. Were there some parts, like, could you relate to where they were on some level? Um, you know, like thinking about your early days starting Cumberland. Yeah, I think it's uh, the opportunities when you, when you looked at them, you'd say there's no reason this should exist. Like this arbitrage, it's so simple. And uh, if it were really there, then someone else would have done it. Uh, but it's just not the case. It, uh, and immediately you say, okay, well, take everything you've learned from traditional trading and just multiply the, the spreads, the margins by 100, maybe even, maybe 1,000. Now, I was in fixed income for, from 2001 until 2017 with a little bit of overlap of crypto in between. And when you're trading fixed income derivatives, you're, you're dealing with quarters of basis points, not even quarters of basis points. You're dealing in 30 seconds of basis points, uh, the thinnest of margins. And then you're introduced to Bitcoin and you've got one exchange trading 6% higher than another one, which was the case in you know, 2013. You say, this is, this is just amazing. So you, you kind of drop everything and um, and focus on, on crypto. That was sort of the genesis of, of Cumberland. Yeah, well, that's one of the things which I think is so interesting about you because I've had crypto traders on the podcast in the past and I've been like, yeah, I used to trade stocks or I used to trade futures and now I trade crypto. Whereas you, you know, that's that's still true in your case. You used to trade uh, futures and fixed income derivatives, but you actually started as a pit trader, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think more technically, I was a pit clerk. So in 2001, I was graduating the University of Chicago, and uh, someone from DRW came to do an interview on campus. I had trouble getting investment banking interviews because maybe I wasn't strong enough or I wasn't prepared enough or even driven enough. Uh, but here comes these trading these trading companies, they come after the investment banks and they say, they sit you down for half an hour and they just pummel you with like two digit by two digit multiplication questions. I'm like, really? That's, uh, that's why I got a math degree <laughs> just to multiply. <laughs> so you sit there and you do your best you can. Um, and it also helped that, uh, they were looking someone from, from athletics too. So I was, I was a soccer player. And the reason they do that, once you go into the pits inside the, the CME or the CBOT, 
like a physical presence actually matters where like some of the best traders weren't the brightest people, but they could, they could physically push you, not push you around with like big trades. They could actually just elbow you out of the way in order to get onto a trade. So I think, um, that was like the ideal candidate in 2001 was somebody who could multiply and, and push people. <laughs> the lifestyle or the, um, the, the typical job candidate has changed since then, obviously. Uh, so I, so I, I multiplied, I got a job and then I went down to the CME and I was a clerk behind Don Wilson in 2001. And I learned a lot in that first year, stood behind him, uh, learned how we traded options, learned a bit about the futures market. And, uh, my career kind of took off from there. What sort of trader was Don at that time? Obviously Don's a a pretty big name. Um, well, that's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Um, but I mean, was he a significant trader at that point in time or was he still sort of coming up as well? No, at that time he'd already made uh, a name for himself. The company was DRW was probably 40 people I'd say. And, um, the type of trader he was, it was, uh, he was a, a risk taker, but at the same time, he uh, he had a very strong grasp of the theoretical value of the things he was trading. Um, that's you know, it's sort of a, a broad statement. Yeah, but you can you can trade with bigger size if you're leaning on mathematics or finance or or some reason to to take the risks that you're taking. Uh, that, that's one thing that I carried with me through my time at DRW. Would you be able to just elaborate on that a little bit? Are you talking about like when you know you have maybe a mathematical edge or a quantitative edge or yeah. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Sure. Uh, mathematical edge is something that uh, you can gain in, in the markets, especially, especially derivatives markets where uh, you apply some sort of financial model to a problem or uh, something from not from finance, like you apply uh, like the Black-Scholes equation kind of, it, it didn't develop directly from finance, but it was applicable to finance. Uh, and then with time, you can, you can develop a theoretical price for the thing that you're trading. And if you can buy lower than that price and sell above that price and do it many times, eventually you will, you'll come out ahead. Uh, the, the important thing to know is um, with efficient markets, your ability to capture that edge will, will decrease rapidly over time. So one important thing that, that Sam talked about in the Alameda interview was that you have to constantly innovate. If you have an edge in the marketplace, you should not expect to hold it for a long time. And while you have the edge over the marketplace, you should exploit it as much as possible. So, you know, 2001, you've got, uh, you've got some people who know how to price a call option. Um, you know how to price perhaps uh, a butterfly better than your competitor. You know that they're going to catch up with that mathematical uh, formulation. So while you can 
price calls better than your neighbor, you should you should trade for large size and uh, get as much volume as possible. Mm. How long? And if you can't if you can't describe your edge in the marketplace with a single sentence or maybe two sentences, then it's probably not an edge you have. You you're just you're trading maybe getting maybe making money because you're lucky or you you maybe you're not trading enough to realize whether uh, you're a good trader or a bad trader but you should be able to identify the edge that you have in two sentences do you feel as though the way that you're trading today which we'll get to later on in this conversation but um, you know you could sum that up in two sentences easy enough for any individual trade where I expect to make money, yes, that's true. Unfortunately, I, I might not be able to tell you those two sentences because <laughs> I want to I want to capture the edge while it's still there. <laughs> how long did you stick around for on the floor? Like, how long was it until you moved on to screens? Uh, it was about a year and a half. I was down in the pit, and then uh, the futures market slowly started moving over to uh, electronic. And it was after my first year that I started doing the, the night shift. And um, as stupid as it sounds, there was uh, the CME futures, which, uh, which had maybe 1% of the volume trading electronically. They were priced differently than a completely fungible contract in Singapore at the Symex exchange. Uh, so I, I would sit there on the phone with someone in the Singapore exchange and and just do arbitrage with the screen at the CME. Um, that was like, <laughs> it's silly. It doesn't exist anymore. It couldn't exist anymore. Um, everything's electronic. Everything's bots. Everything's computers. But there was a time when you could talk to a person and uh, and just make money. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a pretty crazy time. Um, <laughs> wow. So let's, let's, you know, fast forward a few years. I think it was probably around about 2010, uh, when you began to get involved or at least interested in Bitcoin. So, uh, let me ask you, what did it mean to, what did it mean to be involved in Bitcoin in 2010 and how'd you get interested? Like, how'd you even hear about this? this magic internet money? Yeah, so 2010, I came across, uh, well, I was reading a website called Marginal Revolution. Still exists today. I bet some of your listeners frequent that website. Uh, it's just a collection, a, a well-curated collection of, of interesting takes on economics. And it has a very uh, libertarian or Austrian view on certain subjects. So uh, Margin Revolution one day just posted a link to something that said Bitcoin P2P currency for the internet or something like that. And uh, I, I clicked on that and it, it brought you to the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is something special. This has potential. I didn't understand it completely, but from what I understood, I thought... Uh, we should devote a lot of time and perhaps money to this. So Bitcoin 2010, there may be, I don't know, 200 people on the Bitcoin forum, bitcointalk.org. Uh, I joined and at the time, 
there was maybe one message posted a day by one of the members. That's it. So there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of reading up to do about it. Sort of all the information was was there in the white paper, um, a little bit on the forum, and then a small IRC community popped up. You know, like a like a old school chat room where where people talked about it. And the the community back then of the 200 and quickly increasing to, you know, a thousand, 2000 a day people, they were mostly, uh, libertarians or anarchists. Um, maybe a couple of computer developers, but they were all like, this is going to end the state. This is the money is going to change forever. You know, I get excited about that thing too. Uh, I was, I was one of them. Uh, the community has changed since then. I think there's a lot of speculators and traders and uh, who knows. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin's for everyone now. But but at the time, it was for these really fringe anarchists. Uh, what that also meant in 2010 is that uh, there was a, a tremendous opportunity to um, to invest in Bitcoin. Because the people that you're, the other people that know about Bitcoin, they didn't have a lot of money in 2010. <laughs> these are people, these are anarchists living in their parents' basement and, uh, you know, they're mining, their mining rigs are in their garages. So in 2010, uh, it was like, okay, how do I, how do I accumulate Bitcoin as, as quickly as possible? And then basically that, that became an obsession. Or at first it was a hobby, then it was an obsession. And then 2014, we fast forward, uh, it became a career. How did you begin accumulating Bitcoin back then? Like how were you even buying it? I presume it was much more difficult than it is today. Yeah, the first way you could get it was by mining it. But that just didn't come quickly enough. You You could mine on a laptop, which is what I did. And you get 50 coins a day maybe 50 coins every other day. And if you know Bitcoin, um, you know that mining gets more and more difficult as people uh, get interested in it. So mining just wasn't the right option. So the the best way to do it back in 2010, 2011 was, uh, well, the best way for me at least, was to meet people in the the street and uh, hand them envelopes full of cash and have them give you bitcoins. What do you mean, <laughs> give you bitcoins? What would they give you in return for your envelope of cash? Imagine you're a programmer in London who knows how Bitcoin works, and you know how to mine it better than the average person. You set out and you start mining thousands of bitcoins a day. Well, you might not necessarily be interested in Bitcoin, but you know that you can sell it on the street to somebody like me, and you can pay your rent. So. You go online and you look for the Bitcoin marketplace. This is before Bitcoin exchanges existed. That's why uh, a lot of people forget that in 2010, uh, there was really no exchange. So the only way to do it is go online, find somebody and say, I'll agree to meet you at at Starbucks. And uh, you give me a thousand pounds and I will give you, I don't know, 4,000 Bitcoins. But how did they give them to you? So I hand them the envelope. They count the money there on the spot. And then 
they they take their uh, laptop or their phone, probably laptop at the time, and they'd send to to my address. Okay. An address that I gave them ahead of time. So then all I have to do is check the blockchain that the bitcoins have arrived. Maybe you wait ten minutes or twenty minutes to make sure that you're not getting screwed on the on the bitcoin transaction, and then the and then you walk away. So is that something you really did? <laughs> so you did. So you were mining some Bitcoin, and then you were meeting people with envelopes of cash to get more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that really happened. And the reason I stopped doing that was it had nothing to do with the price, because you know if you if you believe Bitcoin is going to re- you know if there's a chance of it replacing world currency, which I did believe. Then you wouldn't stop buying just because it's gone from from one cent to a hundred dollars, right? You, you have the dreams that it's going to go up to to where it is today, and even beyond to the point where it replaces. So, what stopped me was the I was afraid of uh, my bank. I was afraid of the government. Bitcoin was so new, uh, and it had such a bad reputation that. I don't know what's going to happen. I thought there's no way that I can keep all this quiet from from the government. And what happens in, in ten years if if they come after you with like guns at your door? Give me all your bitcoins. We know about you. So the the first thing that happened was yeah, I'm getting envelopes full of cash in London from my bank and and giving them to people. But that activity at the bank. Like where you withdraw one thousand pounds or three thousand pounds at a time, that that raises red flags for them. So they ask. This is a serious conversation I had with the teller. They're like, oh, well, we've noticed that you've taken out a, you know many cash deposits, and we have to ask you what this is for. And I was ready for this question, and I told them that I was. Uh, I played a lot of poker, like <laughs> live poker games at tables. And the problem was that. Uh, I'd never deposited dollars or pounds. So they must have assumed I was perhaps the worst poker player <laughs> in, in London. <laughs> like, Sir, you have a problem. You might need to stop. Just losing money hand over fist. <laughs> yeah. And then when they started asking me uh, too often, uh, I, I knew it was maybe time to, to stop those types of transactions. Well, this is something I did want to ask you. Like, what opinions did you have about Bitcoin? At this time, you said when you first came across the white paper that it was something, it seemed like it was something really special. So what, what opinions did you have about it at the time? I'm very skeptical of, of government, um, especially even before Bitcoin. Uh, I always thought that them being able to print more money uh, was a very... Uh, is a very special power the government had, and it's susceptible to abuse. Maybe not in the United States, states maybe not in the UK, um, but at least in in other countries, I could see people abusing that. So, I always thought that the monopoly on on money issuance and money creation, I thought that was an unfair tactic that the government had, and, and inflation, truly for me at the time and, and now. Is, is a theft. So I was always looking for a replacement, uh, like an electronic money. I, I dabbled in 
Uh, do you know the the game Second Life? Um, hmm. I know the name. It's a si- It was a silly game popular in the mid two thousands. It wasn't really a game. It was just sort of an alternate universe where you could walk around and I don't know, talk to other people, make your avatar wear a funny t shirt, do a dance. Okay. You can even buy like property. So in that game, there were things called Linden dollars. It was an in game currency. And you could, the only way you could get Linden dollars was number one, when you signed up for the game, they'd give you, I don't know, let's say $10 worth. Of, of these Linden dollars. Uh, or you could, inside the game, you could actually, you could sell, you could sell funny looking t-shirts and people would give you Linden dollars for it. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, that's cool. In-game currency, it only exists on the internet. Uh, that sounds good. But the problem is, who, who creates these? And the answer was, it was Linden Labs, the creator of the game. Like, okay, well, let's see what Linden Labs is. And Linden Labs was run by a, a libertarian guy. And he's like, I, uh, I am in charge of the issuance, and and I won't create anymore after uh, after X number of years. Some something along those lines, where you put in your faith in in Linden Labs not to create more Linden dollars. And I thought that was interesting, especially if it was libertarian. But man, wouldn't it be great if there was like an online currency that wasn't uh, issued by uh, like a central Linden Labs type of person, even even if they promised that they're going to do it, or they're not going to issue more, but it was it was controlled by by no one or uh, by mathematics. So that that's like the precursor for me to Bitcoin. That was maybe in the year two thousand six, two thousand seven, and my investment in Linden dollars failed. Uh, I guess maybe they printed more money in the, in the end. They fell back on their word. I don't know why Linden dollars fell apart, but they just never took off. So, you know, when Bitcoin, when the white paper came across my path, I'm like, okay, this is this is what I was trying for. And I sort of had a head start on the rest of, of the world. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned something 
uh, a little earlier, which I found quite interesting. And you said you were one of the first few hundred uh, members or users on the uh, the Bitcoin message board. Was that early enough when uh, Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, when he was active on the message boards? Because I thought, no, yeah, he was. He was responsible for some of the more interesting posts on on the forum, and he was active when I was around. I think maybe we had two forum boards where he was active and I was active at the same time, but uh, we never like exchanged emails or messages. Okay. If you're listening, Satoshi, like send me a <laughs> send me an email or something. <laughs> and it's not, by the way, it's not your countryman, Craig Wright. <laughs> I don't even know there. anything about that story. Let's um, let's Just, let's not let's, even let's go there. Let's not talk about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> waste of time. I know nothing on the subject. Neither does he. <laughs> okay. Now you started uh, Cumberland, uh, so you were at DRW from was it two thousand and one? So from two thousand and one, and then Cumberland only came about uh, in two thousand and fourteen. Um, and mm-hmm. you were the the driving force behind that, right? That was your idea to start, um, you know, to to start this crypto trading desk. Yeah. I, so from 2010 to 2014, I was the annoying guy in the office who couldn't stop talking about Bitcoin. You might know one or two of them yourselves. Uh, like wherever I went, I'm like, oh, it's going to change the world. You guys got to get some of this. And uh, you know, no matter what the conversation started off as, it could have been like a Chelsea Tottenham match. It would end up me talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> I was just I was just not a popular person for a long time, but at least they knew I was interested in it. Those people that did listen to me, by the way, they I think they did pretty well. Um, but I mean, I understand. I was I was annoying, and uh, I probably spent too much time talking about it. So in 2014, I think the the landscape of trading started changing for crypto. I you know. Several several exchanges were getting more uh, more volume, more traction. Uh, there were even some derivatives popping up, which is sort of like the best of both worlds for me. I'm, I was a derivatives trader, and um, and I love Bitcoin, so it, it was an exciting time for me. I think there's not many people who who trade something that they truly love. Like if you if you're a corn options trader, it's not because you love corn so much that you just want to spend your time trading corn options. Or maybe you are. <laughs> Some weird people out there. But for me, like Bitcoin is something I truly loved, and there was a, a trading opportunity. So uh, that was very cool. And you know, I could have continued that um, in my own personal trading, but it started taking up more and more time, and the opportunities themselves required more and more capital. So... Uh, I approached uh, Don at the time, and I suggested that we should open up a like a real trading desk for for Cumberland, and he was on board because he was starting to get excited by crypto too. And uh, I think some of the other partners at DRW were were skeptical. Remember, at the time, 2014, we're coming off the the back of like Mount Gox collapsing and losing uh, you know, hundreds of millions of, of people's Bitcoins. Uh, also, I think Silk Road was making news. Like Bitcoin just had a really bad name. It wasn't just a bad idea. It was 
it was a bad idea and there were crooks and money launderers and, and drug users involved. It, it was just not the right place for any institution to, to pick up and say, yeah, let's, let's do this. But um, DRW, to their, to their massive credit, they said, okay, let's, let's give Mike and uh, my partner at the time, or my, uh, my trading partner at the time, Eric Serenyeki, who we call Wally. So let's give him a chance and, and see what we can do. And at, at the time, they're like, okay, we'll do it under one condition, that you can't use DRW's name or we can't use our bank's. Uh, just you know, do your thing and don't drag us into this this crazy world if if you can avoid it. And that was that was a bit frustrating. Uh, you know, if if you want to start an OTC desk, which I I think is what we wanted to do. If you want to start an OTC desk, you want to be very vocal in public and say, hey, you can trust us. There's not many people you can trust in crypto, but you can trust us because we're DRW. And then they, they take away your ability to do that by saying, no, you can't use our name. Uh, it was basically like starting from scratch. Uh, but the advantage is we had, we had the capital to use. So that was the genesis of Cumberland. It was called Cumberland Mining at the time because Cumberland, uh, the very first project was going to be um, an investment in, in mining equipment. Uh, that, that fell through, but we kept the name Cumberland Mining. It's a bit confusing for everyone. We were called Cumberland Mining, but we were a, a trading group. Yeah. Um, was this something, you know, you, I, I guess you kind of answered this right there. You said it was going to be some sort of mining operation, but became a trading desk. Was it something that got traction pretty quickly or was it a while before you reached a point where you realized, hey, we're really onto something here? Well, I always thought we were onto something. I think it took a while for others to to come to that conclusion. Uh, there were opportunities all around crypto. Uh, depending on what you wanted to do, it could have been exchange to exchange arbitrage. It could have been mining. It, it could have been over-the-counter trading. It wasn't We weren't quite sure. It could have been maybe even just accumulating Bitcoin and, and sitting on it. Uh, we weren't sure what the best approach was. Uh, so it, it did take some time. It, it Maybe a year before things really started uh, cooking. Okay. One thing one thing that helped Cumberland at the time was uh, we participated in uh, a U.S. Marshall's auction. So the Silk Road, when it fell apart, the U.S., uh, like some FBI agents went in and, and took Ross Ulbricht's laptop. And on the laptop was 140,000 bitcoins. And the U.S. government's like, yeah, we got them. And they, they put them in prison. If you want to read more about Ross's prison sentence, which I think is totally unfair, you should, you should look at free Ross. You should put that in the comment section or the links or whatever. What's that? Free Ross dot something? Is I it? think it's free Ross dot org. I don't know. The, the right link will be down there. So now the, the U.S. government, they have a bunch of Bitcoins that they're sitting on. They don't want them. So the U.S. Marshals held an auction maybe a year after they confiscated the coins. And uh, the the auction was 
it was really hyped up at the time in the Bitcoin community. Like who's gonna who's gonna buy all these coins? Um, we at Cumberland just started, and we're like, we, we can participate. There's not many people who can, but we can. So we did. We won a lot of coins uh, in those auctions over the the next coming months. We lost the first auction to Tim Draper, but we we won the the majority of of coins after that. Who's Tim? Uh, he's a Bitcoin enthusiast. He's a American uh, entrepreneur, I guess, investor. Okay, so they sold off these bitcoins in several chunks. Yeah, I think the first chunk went for around six hundred fifty dollars per bitcoin. Per bitcoin, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Actually, as soon as you said Silk Road before, I thought, oh, I've got to ask you about that because, um, yeah, that's pretty I was not fascinating. A <laughs> I was not a developer, so customer, okay. user. <laughs> um, we just helped liquidate their coins. You know, it's a, another interesting fact about those auctions. They, they, first, they put Cumberland on the map. So I'm, uh, I look fondly on, on those memories. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot about government auctions, how they work. They can auction off cars from criminals or houses. And in the case of bitcoins, uh, it was um, it was pretty straightforward. But then you think, okay, this is the government skeptic in me. Who's when we lost the first batch of bitcoins to Tim Draper? They didn't announce that Tim Draper was the winner. They didn't announce what price they were sold at. They didn't announce anything. So you're thinking, wow, if they wanted to, they could have sold it to their their buddies, their their nephews or something. At a really cheap price, cheaper than the the price that we bid for. So, like, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, the the answer is easy. It's a freedom of information request. So, you as an American citizen, or maybe, yeah, I think it's an American citizen. You have the right to ask the government. Okay, what price did these clear at? And you can also ask who is the buyer. They might not tell you that, but they should at least tell you the price they cleared at, and. So we submitted a, uh, a request along with, I think, 13 or 14 other people in, in America requested at what price did these clear. And to this day, the government has not answered those freedom of information requests. So that makes me pretty upset. Have they responded in, in some form? No, just that they've received the request. That should make people mad if the government is auctioning off goods and they don't tell you at what price they clear uh that's a very easy piece of information to release and uh, i don't see who are their who they are protecting by not giving up that information especially you know five years five years later you said before they auction off cars and all sorts of things if you were to ask for that information about a car that got auctioned off would you get that easy enough yeah yeah they would uh, like you'll see if you look at the list of of FOIA requests, freedom of information requests, you'll see that most of them have been answered, at least from 2014. And the ones that aren't are related to the Bitcoin auction. Like, what is that about? This, this Maybe it's in part because the, the free, I know we're, we're going off on a weird tangent. I think we're far away from trading now, but it, it, it's at least interesting to know that uh, there were known government agents who are in jail right now for, uh, for, 
like planting evidence, stealing bitcoins during the the investigation on Ross Ulbricht, um, and they're not they're not providing information on the FOIA requests. It's just silly. Yeah, it's a very interesting case. Um, if someone did want to find out more about that, I know there's been um, there's been like a documentary made. I know there's I think there's a book out about him as well. Um, you know, where's a good place to learn a bit more about this? I, I'm sure that Free Ross has all the uh, the documentation of what's been happening. Okay. I mean, a lot of it is run by Ross's mother, who who's seen her son locked away in a double life sentence, and you know, there's a petition to grant him clemency that's reached around two hundred thousand signatures. Um, but I mean, a double life sentence for running a a website seems harsh. Do you know if anything is going to be done about that? I mean, 200,000 signatures seems pretty significant. I mean, really his best chance is uh, like a presidential pardon or clemency, which seems unrealistic. Sure. But, you know, keep your hopes up. Yeah. Just going back to uh, winning these Bitcoins in the the auction, Mm -hmm. you said you missed the first one, but you got the rest. Maybe a, bit of a dumb question but why were you interested in participating in this auction because you know you were a trading firm whereas you know just accumulating a a lot of bitcoin is almost like an investment right so it's was that kind of in line with your approach to this market or yeah like once you accumulated them did you then have to try and sell them into the market or was it sort of a a longer term speculative uh trade it was uh, it was not a long-term trade, we'll, we'll put it that way. And not all the Bitcoins we won were uh, below the, the current market price of Bitcoin. So whether you held on to it or, you know, whether you held on to it for years or sold it at market rates, you were going to make money one way or the other. Mm, okay. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's let's keep things moving here. I did want to get into something uh, with you, Mike. You know, if we look at your trading career, it, it's pretty significant. You've been in the markets as a professional, as someone who's been actively trading for a good part of almost twenty years. I'd like to ask you, like, what do you think you've done well? Like, what skills have attributed most to your trading success? That's a good question. I think a lot of people are going to associate my trading success with just finding Bitcoin early and holding on to it, and that's fine. Like if that's if that's what people think makes me a good trader, then I'm okay with that. Because like you know, holding holding Bitcoin holding Bitcoin through through periods where it goes up very rapidly was it's hard. It's not an easy thing, but. Um, you know, my, my trading success outside of Bitcoin or maybe, you know, at a higher frequency or higher volume level. I think the thing that makes me uh, successful is f- finding an edge, sort of the way Don would do it by um, evaluating the uh, theoretical or mathematical value of a product, making a market around it, uh, willing to take some positional risk. Uh, 
and just doing that until the, the opportunity is not there. And really innovating to find the next opportunity is, is important too. You, you can't be a one-trick pony in the last 20 years. I'd say most most good trading opportunities, at least for like a Chicago-style prop shop, most good opportunities last about nine months, and then and then they're done. Nine months being the maximum. Are Some opportunities a- last a, a day. Are you able to share an example of that, like something which only lasted like nine months? Take uh, Mount Gox was trading. Uh, 5% above other exchanges. This is Bitcoin. And the one way you could exploit it was by trading Mt. Gox versus, let's say, Bitfinex or Bitstamp. I think Bitstamp was the, the one you trade Mt. Gox against. 5% for a single arbitrage is huge. And the way you do it is uh, by by buying on Bitstamp, selling on Mt. Gox, sending Bitcoins to one exchange, sending dollars back to your bank from another. But the problem was at Mt. Gox, you you started running into uh, withdrawal limits. And one way to get around withdrawal limits is by uh, being close with the exchange. So if you actually went to, if, if you had a connection with the owner of the exchange, you could say, hey, I want to be first in line for, for dollar withdrawals. Well, what's in it for them? Um, I, I don't know, maybe more volume, maybe uh, a steak dinner. <laughs> Who knows? But you know, that's, that's a type of trade where if you get first in line on a withdrawal, then you have a competitive advantage and you just use it until it goes away. Maybe that's a bad example because Mt. Gox ended up losing everyone's money, but I'd say that's just an example. It's an interesting example, though, because it, it sort of goes one step beyond just having a, um, an edge in the actual market. It kind of taps into the, the value of having certain relationships. Yeah, that by no means was a mathematical advantage. I mean, the, the math there was one exchange is higher than the other. Can you, can you do the subtraction? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, the advantage there was, was getting first in line. Yeah. And just sticking in line with, you know, this the fact that you've been able to survive and, and do extremely well in markets over the past 20 years. Um, and I think this is even more applicable given your, uh, your interest in Bitcoin, you know, how volatile it is, how it's, it's gone up so much and come down so much and um, continues to do so. How have you dealt with challenging times and uncertainty? Because that's something that, you know, just every trader struggles with on some level. Okay, so uncertainty, I would say, is more of something you look for in a market rather than uh, you shy away from it. When there's uncertainty, there's there's opportunity. Uh, if the market does not move, then there will be no trading. If there's no trading, then you don't make the money. Um, so the uncertainty, I'm okay with. Uh, the hard part is is when you have a position that goes against you, not for five minutes or a day, but when it goes against you for for six months, that's very difficult. It starts affecting you personally. Uh, and I think maybe with time, uh, you just grow a thicker skin 
and you say, you know what? I didn't need that hundred grand anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's a lot of justification you do after the fact. Uh, <laughs> maybe some sour grapes reasoning. Um, but in the end, if you don't have a thick skin, I don't see how it's possible to even enter the, the trading business. Uh, I've seen some people who come into the, uh, you know, some very, very bright, talented people. They're, you know, maybe they're good at poker. Maybe they're good uh, computer scientists. But after even after five to ten years, they're still slamming the desk and breaking their monitors when a trade goes against them. And that's just never been my style. I, I think if you get emotionally attached to a trade, then the premise of your trade was wrong to begin with. I, you, you should get into a trade because statistically it's going to make you money, not because it's based on hope. You know, if, if you do the trade a hundred times you're going to make money 60 out of the 100 times. doesn't mean that the 40 times where it goes against you, you've done something wrong or uh, you should hang up your boots. It, it It's just a game of like put through some volume on on uh, a theoretical edge that you have and, and don't get emotionally attached to the trade. Do you feel as though having been in the markets for, you know, somewhere near 20 years now that you've you're, developed- You're making me feel old every time you say that. But you're not <laughs> old though. That's the thing is you've-, you've oh, oh, in in trading, I'm a dinosaur. Like, nah. The, there's, no, there's no way that someone like me could get a job in the trading industry anymore. I, I don't have the skills that, that are required for an entry level trader. Yeah, but you're in the position now where you just hire people like that. <laughs> you are. You've uh, you've climbed up the ladder. <laughs> I don't know what you're worried about that for. <laughs> I think um, it's important. It's important to, to have the skills, to develop the skills. Um, you know, stay fresh, s- stay relevant in the markets. That I mean, Don is one of the Don Wilson at DRW. He's climbed up the ladder, but. He's still extremely bright. He's one of the best traders in the world. Um, and he's, he's also running a, an 800-person company. Do you feel as though having spent this time in the markets that you've developed somewhat of a unique perspective of how you look at markets and like how you look at risk now? Like compared to your average person who's maybe been trading, let's say, just a few years do you feel like the way that you look at markets and, and think about strategies and uh, assess risk is different to, you know, someone like I just described? Yeah, uh, maybe N- not too much. I think one thing that's helped me along the way is number one, I like to have a small head count. I like to have a small trading desk. Uh, when you have a small trading desk and you feel understaffed, you can focus on the most important things at hand. It really makes you focus. Um, I don't think throwing lots of people at a problem is is the right thing. I think you, you start with a small group and uh, and make them work hard. And, and um, the other thing that I I think I do differently than others is I try not to spend too much time on back testing. So if you have a a model and you want to apply it to the market. A lot of people will say, okay, well, let's do a couple of weeks worth of back testing. 
apply it to um, market data that we have collected, and we'll see if it makes money. If it doesn't make money, then we'll move on to the next thing. And if it does make money, great, we'll turn on. That's not my approach. My approach is uh, I sense that there's a market opportunity. Let's just turn on, and we'll see what needs to change. Um, and that way you save two weeks worth of, of backtesting and development work. Maybe it comes from the, the times where you you would buy like a Nintendo game and there would be a like an instruction manual. And the first thing you do when you get home is you put the game in and you throw the instruction manual away. You're like, <laughs> let's just try this. That's the, that's my approach to the market. So is there is there any like reason for that or is that that's just your preference? Like is there any reason why you you stare away from, you know, traditional forms of backtesting and just like to test in real time, if you will? Um, probably because I'm not good at backtesting or programming. Okay. <laughs> I'm also cheap. So maybe out of necessity, I I just try to, to mess around with the markets, see, see what they look like, see how they feel. I guess that's maybe a little bit controversial to some people. But I think there's something. Oh, it should be. I mean, it should be. It, like, I'm sitting here on one hand saying that you should be able to, to define an edge uh, and then exploit it as much as possible. But then on the other hand, I'm saying just go out and trade and, and see what comes out of it. I don't, th- I don't think those two things are exclusive. Um, I think if you, if you fiddle around with the market, you will be able to find that edge. Uh, and that's just been my approach. Yeah. You understand like how, how those two things might not be uh, exclusive of each other. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you just you develop your model and then you run it in real time and you get your, your metrics and your, you assess you know, how it performs over the next, I think you said two weeks or whatever that period of time is. Yeah, I've had a few bosses in my time say, hey, I heard, uh, you know, I heard company X was making money in product Y. Now... Go make some money. And all you have is product Y sitting in front of you on a trading ladder. And you're supposed to go make money on it. And the, in, your boss expects results immediately. And how do you deal with that? Well, I think the answer is you just you stare at the market for 12, 13 hours a day and see what jumps out at you. Now, speaking of uh, things which perhaps could be a little controversial... Uh, when we were exchanging messages on uh, Telegram, uh, it's you gave me the impression that you have uh, a slight issue with uh, some forms of technical analysis. So um, let's talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently you don't because on your website, you've got uh, a library where you can go purchase books. Now, there's great books like Hull and I think maybe Natenberg's on there. But then you've got a whole section dedicated tech, to technical analysis, and uh, that irks me. <laughs> uh, I think. <laughs> well, let me just explain. Not that I'm trying to stop you from calling me out here. Those books are being suggested by all the books on that page are suggested by guests who have been on this podcast. That's so a quick reference for people. But um, yeah, continue. Have you had any astrologists on your show? Because, I mean, maybe you could put those books in the same section. There, <laughs> there, is, no, <laughs> there is no science in technical analysis. The, I, I believe, I'm sorry for however many listeners you have who, who are convinced that they're making money because of TA. Uh, I just don't think it works. Um, and a lot of the reason 
a lot of the reason it's popular is because the people who trade with technical analysis, they get away with using language that uh, is unfalsifiable. Let me give you an example. Someone will say, Bitcoin uh, is going to test to Bitcoin is going to test 10,500. And if we break through, then we're going to trade 11,000. But if we don't break through, expect to trade back to 10,000. Okay, there are many things wrong with the statement. One, he's not saying very much. Two, what does it mean to test a level? Does it mean to trade it? Does it mean to come near it? If it means to come near that level, like how near is it? Um, and if we break through, what does that mean to break through if, if we trade 10,501? Uh, but the thing is, no matter what happens after this person says that, he, he will come out and say, you see, I was right. We, we tested it. We didn't break through and we're, and we're trading near 10,000. So I think what you should do if, if you hear people using unfalsifiable language is you should call them out and say, okay, what time frame are you talking about? What, don't use the word test. Like, give me a price. Are we going to trade 10,499? And if we touch it, are we going to trade 11,000? Okay, that's fine. That's a little better. Um, I think the language of technical analysts is very vague and intentionally vague. Um, it makes their, their charts with funny colors and lines and, and Ichimoku clouds like come to life. But I don't think it's real trading, no. Is your issue with people who are using technical analysis to create, you know, predictions, like come up with prices? Like you said, Bitcoin might test 10,500 or might break through 10,500. Like using it to, uh, like I said, predict a price. Or is your issue also with using it as sort of like, you know, chart patterns and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so I, I have a problem with the language they use. Uh, and then aside from that, I don't think that drawing a line on a chart is uh, predictive of the direction of a market in, in, by any means. I, I, would like, I would like to see some, I would like to sit down to a, a technical analyst for a month and, and just see what kind of money he's capable of making or how, how many trades he does. That's a challenge. I'm just going to throw a counter argument your way. I don't necessarily agree with this or disagree with it, you know, just so it's, it's not a purely one-sided conversation. I feel as though some people who use technical analysis probably would agree with you that it doesn't have predictive power, but they use it um, perhaps as a way to, manage their risk. Okay. And in, in what way are they managing risk by looking at a chart? Well, they might have a, a, some sort of chart pattern which they use and they say, you know, if, if the price gets below this point, then that, and that sort of breaks this pattern, it's a failed pattern. That's where I'm putting my stop loss. You know, that's where I admit I'm wrong on the trade and I take my loss and, and okay. move on. That's fine. I think that's setting like a stop loss that that's connected to a chart. The stop loss is proper risk management, and uh, you shouldn't conflate proper risk management with uh, with the, the silly lines you draw on the chart. Uh, 
so here, let me give you another example of of where things can go wrong or where things have gone right for technical analysts. In, in the Bitcoin world, in let's say 2015, number one, if you're a technical analyst, you may be connected to two or three different exchanges. And in Bitcoin in 2016, those exchanges could differ by like a percent. So you, you choose uh, your favorite technical analysis graph. You draw a line on it and you say, okay, this is the level where I'm going to sell. You draw uh, a, a curved line with a, a Fibonacci number attached to it. You say, okay, this is where I'm going to buy. Now, okay, you've, you've reached the, the sell line in the market. You, you put out an order and it executes. Now, the thing is, you're going to sell at one of the three exchanges with the highest price. And if we come back down and we we trade on the curved line where your Fibonacci number is and you buy it, you're going to buy at the exchange with the cheapest price. And if you do that many, many times, you might say, you know what, I'm a technical anal uh, analyst wizard. But really, you're making your money over the long run because you're collecting the 1% bid ask of the, the exchange arbitrage. You're just doing sort of a statistical arbitrage over time. It's not because you're a technical analyst guru that you're making money. So in, in the end, you're sort of misattributing your skills to the charts when you're actually making money for a different reason. In the same way, your example, uh, risk management you're, you're managing risk well because you're putting in stop losses at levels, not because uh, the levels you choose are, are necessarily correct. Okay. But when we talk about levels, like, you know, Bitcoin is a great example of this. Um, I'm not sure when it was. Uh, what are we in? Sort of must have been towards the end of last year where Bitcoin held, I think it was that $6,000 level for a pretty long period of time. Like, that was a pretty significant level. Like things like levels and actual reference points like that are a are a real thing, right? What do you, what do you mean by a significant level? Yeah, we were there for a long time. Does that make it significant? Uh, I don't think so. It just means we were there. So if if Bit, when Bitcoin broke below that six thousand dollar level, that had no mm -hmm. significance to you? No, not really. How come? No. <laughs> I think the, the explanation of significance has to come from the person who says it's significant. Like, well, what, it's what a major it support. Like, what, what is I mean, there's, there's the major no, support level? What is it? There's no denying it was a major support level, that $6,000 level. And when that level breaks, then, you know, there's some information there. What's the information? Well, That's what I'm challenging here. That yeah, we've broken through 6,000. So what's next, I guess, is the question. Does it mean we're going well, to trade to 5,200 or 5,500? Well, do, do you need to say what's next? Do you need to say we're getting to 5,500? Well, sort of. 000? When you say something is significant, you, you want to say, I assume you're making some sort of prediction about what's happening next. Uh, yeah, well, probably lower prices. But then if it depends what sort of trader you are. You know, if you're, if you're a swing trader... I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make a prediction about what price it's going to go to. I, I didn't even trade this event. I'm just using it as an example. So, mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to understand how you think about things. I, I don't know if. First of all, I wouldn't. I wouldn't declare anything as supportive or resistance. The the fact that we're even talking about levels is 
it's cringy for me. Um, but like, you know, if we, if we go below 6,000, does that mean we should sell 5,999? I, I don't know. You well, tell me. Well, it depends what your strategy is, I guess, and what sort of okay. opportunities you want to go after as a trader. But here, let, let me, let me ask you this question. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be new traders. And one of the things that you come across as a brand new trader and a retail, um, as a retail trader, um, you know, not coming up through DRW, technical analysis is one of the first things you kind of get introduced to. Um, so as you're very opposed to this, someone who's only been trading for, let's say six months, 12 months, might be wondering, well, how are you trading? Like what are the sort of the signals and, and what sort of factors are you using to drive your decisions? Like what sort of things do you think are important? Sure. It's a good question. And to all the new traders, um, I, I wish you luck. Um, I, I would go away from technical analysis because it's a very easy way to convince yourself that you're doing things right. Um, that's a trap that you shouldn't fall in. You should be looking for an edge in the marketplace, as I've said a couple of times already in the interview. Uh, and just because you've made money on a trade doesn't necessarily mean you've done something right. It requires many, many trades over a longer period of time to suggest that you're, you may be doing something right. Uh, I know it's broad and you're looking for something more concrete, but you should be able to identify an edge. and. Maybe you're looking for another example. Uh, if you want to trade uh, a future, you should be able to build a futures curve and compare it to spot pricing, compare it to a forward curve. If there's swaps, you should compare it to a swap curve. And if, if one curve gets out of line relative to the other, you should ask yourself, well, why is this curve out of line? Maybe I'm out of line. Maybe my model's out of line. And if you, if you fully exhaust all the reasons that something shouldn't be out of line, but it still is, then you could say, okay, theoretically, I think that this price is, is incorrect. Um, and that's just tools of, of finance and, and math. It has nothing to do with charting. Are you able to give, like that example, you're talking about trading spreads across the yield curve, correct? Mm-hmm. So, again, that's probably, I'm just trying to think for the brand new trader, right? Just yeah. try not to lose them on this conversation. So uh, let's just think about maybe just trading equities. So trading a stock, let's say trading, maybe I was going to say trading Apple stock, but maybe that's not a great example. Okay, let's just think about the US equities market. Like what what could be an example of an edge there? I am not an equities trader. You're going to stump me on this. But like, you know, if you if you... If you look at dividends and projected dividends, you could probably come up with a, a theoretical price of a stock. And if it's trading different than that, then you, you should you should exploit it. <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> such a bad example. That's all right. You're not an equities guy, so um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe maybe a poor question on my part. There's, here's here's a silly here's a silly easy to understand example. 
of, of things that have worked for me in the past. Many exchanges have a matching algorithm that is FIFO, first in, first out. So if you're in the front of the queue, you have an advantage over the person that's behind you. If, uh, if there's people, if the offer size is 100 and you're the first 10 and five trades up, then you get the first five. So how do you take advantage of that? You sell the five and then you, and you buy five somewhere else. Uh, how do you maintain your advantage? Well, you want to study the, the, the exchange and find out what's the best way to be first in on an offer because other people are going to look at the same thing. And then you say, okay, well, maybe I could co-locate my servers at the exchange. That way I can, I can put in my orders before everyone else. Well, everyone's going to try to do that too. Maybe there's a nuance at the exchange where uh, you can kind of sneak in on the open and be first. You know, that's that's the type of advantage that I look for. It, it's much different than like than trading equities on your E-Trade account. It's, it's almost a different world. Yeah. No, it is. It is 100%. I guess my question was around, you know, just trying to not lose any new traders who are going to be hearing, you know, someone like yourself come on, a very experienced trader, been in the market 20 years. I don't mean to repeat that again. <laughs> <laughs> going to be 21 by the end of the interview <laughs> <laughs> you know hearing you just tear apart technical analysis that might sort of take them back a little bit so yeah it's it's interesting to get your take on things and where you might look for an edge in the market so yeah you left uh cumberland i think it was around 2017 and then uh, did you you moved back to france or you had a bit of a break from trading and now you've come back with with grapefruit like what's the story there yep that's right uh, I left Cumberland at sort of a, a unique time that the desk was doing well, but so was Bitcoin. And uh, I wanted to take a break and uh, spend more time with the family. So went back to France and France was great and everything, but uh, I was still spending all my time staring at Bitcoin markets. So uh, I said, let's move back to the States. Um, did that and started grapefruit trading. So grapefruit trading very simply put, is a cryptocurrency trading company. We do over-the-counter trades. We do uh, exchange trades. Uh, it's principal money, so you know we're not a fund. We take partnership money and invest it in trading opportunities. Uh, one good thing about running an OTC company is that because I've known people in the crypto community since 2010, I know a lot of people who are holders of coins that, that are looking to, to sell. And at the same time, I, I know a lot of buyers. Um, so, you know, standing in between matching those two people, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I think the advantage is the, the network that we have. What would you say is like the breakup between volume that you do OTC and volume that you do um, like on exchange? Uh, algorithmically, it's very easy to, to put put through large numbers. So I'll say 70% of our, our volume is algorithmic on exchange and then 30%, but still not a small number, is done OTC. The landscape of OTC trading is different too. Um, before at Cumberland, the, the spreads were wide there weren't many um, choices of, of people to trade with, and the exchanges were all still kind of a bit a bit shady, less institutional than they are now. Um, 
now the the landscape has changed. People, uh, it's much more institutional based. Uh, spreads are, are very thin, and really the some of the best opportunities in OTC trading for us has been the ability to match um, the not Bitcoin but all the altcoins buyers and sellers. Right. Would you be able to walk through an example of how an OTC trade actually takes place? Because it's something very new to a lot of people. Yeah, so you're interested in buying Bitcoin Cash, let's say, because it's the best cryptocurrency on the market. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is the one true Bitcoin. (laughs) Uh, You you don't want to deal with exchanges because uh, exchanges require uh, a lot of time, effort, and deposits before you do the trade and you hear about grapefruit trading you say great i'll sign up with them so you send us your kyc information we get to know who you are make sure that you're not uh, a terrorist or money launderer and now okay you're you're onboarded as a client then um, you can either do it through uh, an api or you can do it over chat or over phone you say okay i'd like your offer on a million dollars worth of bitcoin cash we show you an offer of uh, I don't know, 300 and you say, okay, I'll buy that. And then you send a million dollars and then we send you uh, X number of Bitcoin cash. Okay. So it's for people who have large holdings. Uh, in general, we, we're aiming for, uh, for trades over $25,000. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, it's not, it's not huge. All coins are great because it's hard to find exchanges that might list your favorite altcoin. Um, so OTC is a great option for you for that. So when someone calls you up and they say, I want to uh, you know, sell a million dollars in Bitcoin, how do you decide what prices to quote in an OTC transaction? Sure. It depends on a couple of things. Like how eager are you to, to sell the coins? Do you need it immediately? Or if you give us a day, let's say, then we can go and ask our network uh, if there's a person who, who will buy those. Um, that would be the best, you know, if we found a buyer and seller. Uh, at times, at times we might not be able to do that and we'll have to go to the exchanges and, and sell the million dollars. So first thing we find out is like, okay, how much time do we have to work with? Uh, the second is how liquid is the market? Do we have... Uh, do we have coins on the exchanges in order to hedge ourselves? Um, because that's another thing. If you say, I want to sell a million dollars of some really, you know, number 200 coin on the coin market cap list, there's a good chance that we don't have that coin just sitting on an exchange and we'll have to go and, and, and somehow create those coins or borrow those coins, uh, get those coins onto an exchange. So, uh, you know, liquidity is a factor. Your, your time preference is a factor. Um, the volatility of the market is a factor. And then we kind of throw those things into a model and come out with a price. Okay. Yeah. I presume that time factor would be really important to some people because as we know, crypto can move so quickly, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, if it's going to take a day to get the transaction through, um, you know, that's can be more risky to, to, I guess, both parties. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's correct. I think what's important is for, for OTC, and one of the reasons it's so appealing to people is that 
there's the concept of post-trade settlement, which is you and I agree to a price now, like that can happen right now. And the money moves, like the dollars for coins that moves T plus one, It'll, you can move tomorrow. The most important thing is that you set a price. If you try to do that on exchange and you don't have your coins on the exchange, you have to go to your wallet, unlock it, uh, send it to the exchange, wait for those coins to be confirmed. Um, and then when you sell it, you might even have withdrawal limits so that you can't really get your dollars out for another month. So there is there is appeal to, to trading OTC. And I think one of the biggest gains is that you can just lock in a price immediately. Just look, you know, hit us up on Telegram. Boom. You, you've got a price right there. Ready. Right. So you've got grapefruit trading. And I know you've also got interest in um, some exchanges. Um, obviously, you're a, uh, you're a partner of um, CoinFlex, who have been a, a sponsor of the podcast recently. Um, but you're also... Uh, an investor, I believe, in uh, I saw somewhere you're an investor in a an exchange in the Middle East, um, and I don't know. There's maybe others that I don't know about as well. What's uh What's attractive to you about being an investor in exchanges? Uh, well, exchanges are great because they uh, they work well on downswings as well as upswings. I feel like so much of my exposure to to cryptocurrency is just if the price goes up and that's not, that's not great. You know, you're not completely hedged there. So, um, I liked the, the middle Eastern exchange was really nice because I felt 2010 to 2017, even through today, the middle East has really been left out of, uh, of crypto. I, I can say that confidently because I've, I've been on the OTC side of things since 2014 and I just, never ever see uh, Middle East buyers. Maybe it's because our sales team or biz dev team just had no way to get there. But I really think that um, there's money there waiting to be put into crypto. So uh, I like the guys behind Rain. I, I hope that does well. And CoinFlex, CoinFlex is good. It's not American. It, it's, uh, it's Hong Kong. Um, and all crypto is sort of moving away from from U.S. trading to places where the the regulatory bodies aren't as strict as the CFTC or SEC. So uh, CoinFlex is doing some really cool things too. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mike. Well, we should probably uh, bring this to a close. Uh, we've gone a little bit longer than anticipated, uh, which is totally okay for me. I know you've probably got uh, things you need to uh, get on with, but um, I just want to say it's been a real honor to speak with you, Mike. I, I truly mean that. I um, I reached out to uh, Bobby, Bobby Cho. Uh, listeners will be familiar with who he is. He's been on the podcast twice who, and used to work with him at Cumberland. Um, I, I reached out to him, I think, about two years ago to try and get him to make an intro and um, see if you'd have any interest in doing a podcast then. Um, I don't know if word got through, but anyway... We made it happen, and it's it's just really nice when these things um, come together. Some listeners, yeah, I'm I'm glad to be on the show. I'm sorry I disappointed uh, half your half your user base with the technical analysis rant. Hundred <laughs> percent. <laughs> Maybe you have not. me back. I can redeem myself. <laughs> no, no, no stress at all. 
Um, no, uh, that was that was a fun bit of conversation there. I, I liked having the debate, and I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way, um, or or agreeing with everything you said. Um, I just sort of wanted to throw some counter arguments your way. So that was a bit of fun. If someone wants to find out more, uh, obviously you're on Twitter. Uh, there's the Grapefruit website, and you've also got a little project that you've put together. Is Mike uh, Komaransky dead? So you might as well give that a mention. Plus, please share your uh, Twitter handle. Sure. The Twitter handle is M Komaransky, and the project is ismikekomaranskydead.com. <laughs> I'm wearing a Fitbit, and the Fitbit measures my heart rate. That's nothing new. Everyone has a, a watch that probably measures your heart rate. But what makes my watch different is that it sends my heart rate to the blockchain as a Bitcoin cash transaction. So every 100 heartbeats, my watch sends uh, a, tr- a very, very, very tiny transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain with the data of uh, how many beats per minute my, my heart is going. And then the website takes that information and uh, it tells you, tells the user whether or not I am dead. And right now, if you go there, it should probably say no. If uh, if I am dead, it will say maybe. Um, and if I take my watch off, it will also say maybe. But uh, it's sort of a proof of concept of using the blockchain. Uh, you can obviously no one really cares that much if, if I'm dead or alive. And some people do greatly, but most people don't. Uh, but it is a proof of concept that you can you can store some information on the blockchain, do it cheaply, uh, and again, you can only do it with Bitcoin Cash. You can't do it with Bitcoin. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, and the Grapefruit website, just in case someone wants to find out more information about grapefruit trading, you can go to gfruit g f r u dot i t. That's a very cool uh, domain, I must say. <laughs> Thanks. Cool. I've had some people say, like, are you Italian? And no, it's just a cool website. Uh, okay, okay. All right, Mike, let's uh, let's bring this to a close. Again, really appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for doing the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.